0: I was having a conversation with somebody about guns, and I I remember saying that, you know, they're there they're really that's like valid reasons to have guns, especially if you live in areas where you don't have police nearby. I mean, this is something you learn in Texas, because especially when people live out in the country, you can't just go like to the corner and call 911. And And there's a lot of valid reasons for gun culture. And she was just like, God, you are becoming a Republican. And to me, it always felt like it was the moment when I was introducing that their side wasn't as simple as they thought it was. And so it felt like a shutdown.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This week's guest is a returning guest to the podcast, Sarah Heppala. I'll introduce her properly in a moment. But first, a couple items of business. The first is that as of next week, this podcast will be on summer hiatus. As you may know, I've got several projects I'm trying to juggle and or get off the ground. And I felt like it would be a good idea to give this podcast a breather. I promise it is not going anywhere, and it's possible I may drop in at some point with a solo episode if I find myself in a monologuing kind of mood. But as it stands, the show will be off for the rest of this month and August and be back around Labor Day. The good news for you, at least if you crave the sound of my voice, is that my new podcast with Sarah Hayter, A Special Place in Hell, is Full Steam Ahead. If you have not checked it out yet, it's a podcast where Sarah and I talk about various cultural issues, many of them related to women, feminism, male-female dynamics, and the kinds of stuff you're not supposed to say about those things. Uh, Sarah, who has been on this show, by the way, and I have a 20-year age difference, so there's a lot of comparing and contrasting, and not getting one another's pop culture references. This is a Substack podcast, but it is free and you can get it anywhere. You get your usual podcasts Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, all of that. The main page for it is a specialplace.substack.com that you can always just type a special place in hell into Google and find it. <laughs> and God knows what else. If you do that, you can also find me on Twitter at at Megan underscore down, Dom, and I'll be linking to it a lot. By the way, the first episode of A Special Place in Hell, we discuss the confusing pronunciation of my last name. So if that's something that you've been wondering about, that's a great place for you to go. Okay. The other thing is that my project, The Unspeakeasy, is quickly gathering steam This is a community for heterodox-minded women or uh, an intellectual community for free-thinking women. I'm trying maybe not to use the word heterodox so much because I think it confuses people. This will exist both online and in real person, in real life, in real person. Real people will be meeting in real life uh, in the form of retreats, hopefully to exciting places. So if you are interested in that, go to theunspeakeasy.com. Okay, my guest, Sarah Heppola, you are probably familiar with. She was on the podcast back in March, and we got a little sidetracked from what we were originally going to talk about, so I brought her back. In this conversation, we discuss what's going on in media and journalism, uh, what led her to write her Atlantic Magazine article back in March called The Things I'm Afraid to Write. But we also spend a lot of time talking about abortion, We recorded this conversation exactly a week after Roe versus Wade was overturned. And we talk about the immediate effects of that in Texas, where Sarah lives, and she reflects on her own choices and complicated feelings about abortion. And we just generally talk about what feelings we have around this whole debate uh, and what feelings we don't have. It's a great conversation, so here it is. Sarah Heppala, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Great to have you as always. So, I've been wanting to have you back because when you were here a few months ago, the occasion was your Atlantic piece, the piece that came out in March. Called the things the things I was afraid to write about the things, the things I am I'm afraid. afraid
0: to write about. Okay,
1: and present tense still. that was present tense back then. Well, I, that's that's why you're back. I want to know what's changed. So yeah, we got we got a My lot hero's of heroes. Journey
0: began there. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah, that's right. All heroes' journeys begin in the Atlantic Magazine, don't you know? <laughs> We got a little derailed in that conversation because we started talking about the Brock Turner sexual assault case, the the Stanford swimmer case, um, and we really just sort of made uh, many large meals out of that. So I wanted to have you back to sort of revisit some of the things that we maybe didn't get a chance to get to revisit them, visit them for the first time.
0: Yeah, I'm so proud to be a two-timer, by the way. It's got to be like a, like a pretty small circle, but.
1: Yeah, I think, I think Katie Herzog is a two-timer, Jamie Kilstein is a two-timer, and, and you are. So you're, it's a trifecta. So we're, we're recording this on Friday, July 1st. It's been a week to the day since Roe versus Wade was overturned. It, it feels like an eternity. Can you believe it's only been seven days?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. I've cycled through so many stages of grief. It's been a wild ride.
1: Yeah. And I, I want to hear from you about this because unlike most people I know, you live in Texas. You are from Texas. You live there now. What is it like in Texas right now?
0: Yeah, I do live in Texas. By the way, I live about a mile from where Roe v. Wade began because Norma McGorvey met uh, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington at an Italian restaurant about a mile from, Dal- from where I live in Dallas. So, the roots of Roe v. Wade are right here where I live. And, you know, it's a, it's a case that I looked into, actually thought about doing a podcast about, about Roe v. Wade for a while. And so I, but I just, uh, you know, it's so weird. I, I don't know that I ever actually really thought it was going to be overturned. And I, I went through a period of disbelief. And of course, when you live in Texas, boy, there's a lot to recommend this place. <laughs> But our politics on this topic are definitely not one of them. And there's a lot of uncertainty and fear. You know, I spent a fair bit of time yesterday talking to one of my pro-choice friends that works in reproductive health and one of my friends who is pro-life. Here in Texas, you tend to have a mix of those of those people. You know, I know people that are pro-life. I know people that are all over the map. One of the things that both of them uh, expressed concern about was just that we're not set up for this. Like in terms of what it's going to do to to women in Texas, there's already we, we had a bill called SB8, which put very uh, strict, strict limits on abortion. And already there was like an 800 percent rise in neighboring states and the demand for abortion. And one of the things that you saw was that there was such a long waiting list that women were having to wait even longer and longer. So if the point of the law was to make abortions earlier, it was doing quite the opposite, right? And so there's all this concern about that. And then there's a lot of concern around what it's going to mean in terms of trigger laws and and how it's going to, like, there are doctors that are concerned about, like, ectopic pregnancies or what if they're like there is all these there's going to be all these unforeseen consequences that we can really only guess what they're going to be because a lot of the laws are written in, in ways that they could be shifted one way or the other you know it could be a horrible dystopia where everybody you know women are criminalized for their own losing their own pregnancies, or it could be where like, oh, it turns out that like a lot of people just get their pills online and it's not going to make that huge of a difference. But I do think whatever it does to the statistics on abortion, what it's done to, I think, a lot of young women, but also like medical providers is to create an enormous amount of anxiety.
1: Yeah. So there was a piece in the New Yorker um, that came out just, I don't know, 48 hours or so after the the news broke about an abortion clinic in Houston it took place at i guess is maybe it's the largest abortion clinic in Texas it was a clinic in Houston and you know the reporter was there you know even before the the, the news broke they were kind of you know all the people who worked there were were looking up you know Looking at the TV, waiting to see what was going to happen. The TV. They were probably looking at their phones. Let's, uh, right, let's get in, right. Let's get into 2022 here. And you know, I was struck by a lot of things about the article, but one of them was just the the number of women coming into the clinic who had no idea that that this was even in, in peril. They, they didn't seem to be aware of the politics at all. Sometimes because they were not, they were immigrants or they were not native English speakers, but In other cases, they were like American women, um, ostensibly voting uh, citizens that had absolutely no clue that this was going on.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, just doing something else, you know, and and not really paying attention to that. I I think there's probably a lot of people like that, especially young people that might not be as politically active.
1: Right, right. And, and, And a
0: little bit checked out on that. And then and then what do you know? Guess what? the whole rules have changed.
1: I mean, it's funny because like the world that you and I are in is obsessed with this issue. I mean, the, the world of women's media and the kind of feminist blogosphere, you know, reproductive rights is main stage pretty much all the time. So it's really remarkable to think that Somebody could not be aware that this was happening. Although you know, there were also there was you know, I thought it was a you know, it was a well-reported piece. It's not it's this one of those point-and-shoot kind of articles. It's not hard to write. You just kind of sit there and and watch everything unfold and write it down. But you know, at the end of the piece, there was a woman who was being turned away. She was not. She was a Spanish speaker, and she just seemed incredibly confused. And she says something like, "Well, you know, if I can't get an abortion here, my friends tell me that." Um, there's a man from Mexico who will do it for me, and I can go to him. And it was a really striking way to end a piece, Like, as a journalist, as a writer, like that's okay. That's a good ending. However, there was no mention of of the pills. There was no real acknowledgement that the landscape might have changed. There was still this kind of um aura of catastrophe over over, you know, the reporting. And we continue to see this in a lot of the news coverage, or at least I do. I don't know what you are noticing
0: yeah I think there's a there's a fair bit of that of of look i I think it's re- <laughs> it's really hard for me to figure out whether I should be joining on to this catastrophizing like doom and like, oh wow, it really is going to be bad. i think i actually, by the way, I think it is going to be a little bad for a while yeah um yeah and and it's not we're not sure exactly how that's going to look but but i I tend to be someone who who tries to look toward what this could build and what we could do differently. Roe v. Wade was such fraught legislation. We fought over it for the better part of 50 years. And I have, you know, when when I look at that, you know, there's a Pew research study that that kind of laid out how everyone feels on abortion. And I spent some time with it recently and I found it very, you know, very... Enlightening. There's a, you know, seven out of ten people want abortion in, in most circumstances. And you know, the more you break this down, the the more it's going to get. You know, people are going to fall off the cracker. You know, six six weeks, yes, most people are for it. fourteen weeks, it's about half and half. By the time you get to twenty four weeks, it's like eh, not so many. And that's where Roe had drawn the line. I think we have an opportunity to build something that m- might be a more sustainable compromise and I would re I would really like to see that codified into law and I really think there is so much support for this and a few years of of what I imagine are going to be very difficult will help rally people toward that goal which I think is is a really good place for us to be.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what Sarah Hader said um on, on the podcast I do with her, our our new podcast, A Special Place in Hell. Yeah. There was gonna be a period of real pain and um some some women are gonna suffer greatly. There are going to be babies born that are not wanted. There are going to be women that um are harmed. Paul probably die in a few cases. Um, but at the end of the day, the the pro-lifers are going to have to live with the consequences of their politics. You know, it's, it's one thing to stand on principle and another thing to live it on the ground.
0: And I, and I, I guess I, I want to say as well, there's going to be people that are going to have children that they wouldn't have had in other, in other settings. And then they will have a different kind of uh, story, which is like, Oh wow, I almost had an abortion and now I have a child, which I mean, Sorry to be complicated, but I know this is the place. Um, (laughs) Yes, please. You know, like, look, I I had an abortion when I was 30 years old. That's 17 years ago. And, you know, my life kind of breaks off in this in, in these two directions. There's this life that that was not lived. And a lot of that is relief. And there is also some grief mixed up in that. I've always found the way that we talk about our own personal abortions to be a little bit too simple, like it's not just relief and it's not just grief. It's it's some kind of twining of the two over the years, like pretty much everything in my life. <laughs> um, but there will be other people that have different stories. And I don't mean to minimize that, but that will be a very interesting part of this as well.
1: Oh, wow. You're right. There will be more. Pe- that's I've never thought of that, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, there will be children that will be born and people will say, I wanted to get an abortion, but I didn't. And now there's a child. now, you know, look, I, I I have no idea what this is going to look like. There could be a lot of people that that hate having children. And we'll never say as much. Uh, Sarah, you know, nobody
1: regrets having children, don't you know? Yeah, I know. It's one of the biggest taboos. unheard of. No. It's so one many of the people big- have said that to me. I, people like very smart in every single way, very well-meaning say, Oh, Megan, it's nobody regrets not having a child. That's just not possible. <laughs> it's like, please, if you saw my inbox, my email, you would not say that.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, look, I... I regret most things about my life, and and <laughs> yeah. at some point or the other. But you know, but look, I, I I just think that there is going. I guess we're always living in a social experiment. If you want to yes. be, <laughs> yes. But it really feels like we are right now, and you know, to speak to when I spoke to my friend who is pro life, one of the things that she was so angry about was that this law was changed without any of the structures in place to help these women that need the help. That is really distasteful. Uh, It is the way in which this this issue becomes a political football. And, you know, as has been pointed out many times, a lot of this political jockeying has more to do with winning a small war that will get you elected again than it has to do with helping women.
1: Yeah. And this is another thing I talked about with Sarah Hader, just the idea that all these babies are going to be adopted happily ever after. That is a fantasy that I think a lot of people on the right have. And, you know, frankly, a lot of people on the left. I mean, adoption is incredibly complicated. And I think those complications have been overlooked for a really, really long time. And that's starting to change. I mean, there's an adoptees rights movement, for instance, But, but yeah, that's one thing that always kind of sticks in my craw that like, you know, that, that somehow this is going to be great because we have a, you know, we have a a supply chain problem with, with healthy infants in this country. And so this is going to somehow solve that.
0: Yeah, that all gets, it all gets a little bit, uh, icky to talk about too, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a million, there's racial implications and there's like, yeah, there's all, there's all kinds Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a topic for another conversation, but you know, I just want to go back to this point that you made. That's kind of blowing my mind and it shouldn't be because it's obvious. So there are going to be women, men, there are going, there are going to be people, there are going to be people who are parents who would not have been parents if they had been able to access abortion and they are going to be forming opinions about abortion based on their experience. And sometimes their experience will be negative and they, their opinions about abortion will remain extremely pro-choice. And there are, are experiences that are going to be extremely positive and that might make them more pro-life. Yeah. They'll, that's have something very,
0: that, yeah. They'll, they'll have a very different story to tell possibly. I mean, we, we're creating, we can't even-
1: a, yeah, a cohort that has not been there before. Right. A cohort of people who thought, assumed they thought one way, but now find themselves feeling a different way. And I wonder if the media will publish their stories.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I can't (laughs) wait to read their personal essays. You know, I am. I just just want to read about people's people's experiences. I don't know. Will they be published in The Atlantic? That's the that's the question. uh, Yes. I I think The Atlantic will still be around. I've been very impressed with how The Atlantic has has. Skied the slopes of these last five to ten years,
1: yes, I was going to say threaded the needle, but yes they have they have they have skied the the slippery slopes, the diamond slopes uh, yes, the di- <laughs> the double back diamond of the culture wars. I mean, you don't need to get into this too much if you don't want to, but you know this idea of a kind of pivotal moment in our lives. You know, the, the before, you know, there's this part of your, like the before time and the after time. And sometimes it can be like a teeny tiny little thing. Like somebody saw a film that changed their lives. You know, it can, it can be something like that Um, or it can be something like having an abortion. And, you know, I, I'm curious if you feel like saying anything about how you imagine your life would have gone and how it's different than how you imagined it at the time? Do you now say, wow, I could have pulled this off and it it would have actually worked in a way that was inconceivable to me at the time?
0: Yeah. I, you know, it's so interesting. I think, I think as somebody that reads a lot of books and, and edited a lot of personal essays, I'm very familiar with the epiphany and the overused epiphany and the like on this day, nothing was the same after that. Like you said, it could be, and, and genuinely, it could be a movie or something, but as a general rule, I think that stuff is pushed too hard. I don't think that's true in this case. You know, 16 years ago, I, I had, I had, my boyfriend and I had broken up. We had had breakup sex and Uh, Some genius Was like I'd run out of my pill And I was like Why do I need To have a pill I don't have a boyfriend That's a good way Of you know Making sure you
1: won't go back to
0: him, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little is bit of kinda, insurance. Is it kind of
1: like wearing really like ugly underwear when you go on a date? Yeah. So you so yeah, you I don't just like, take Finally, your clothes off? I don't off. have to, I don't,
0: I don't <laughs> have to worry about this policy. anymore. <laughs> right, right. And then I went to go pack up my things and we ended up having sex. And um, it was only a few days after my period. And I was sort of like, well, I haven't ovulated yet. You know, like my genius, my genius reproductive. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah well, any? Anyway. Um, but I ended up getting pregnant. Um, when, I, when I went into Planned Parenthood, the, the woman was, I was like, but I hadn't ovulated yet. And she was like, no, that's not how the pill works. It actually suppresses ovulation. So as soon as you stop, that's when you release an egg.
1: Oh, really? And I was like,
0: oh. So the time that I thought that I couldn't have a kid, she was like, right, you were the most fertile. Damn it! So uh, I i actually, I was 30 years old, which struck me as rather late for this story. And I had, uh, because we'd broken up, I'd announced I was going to move to New York. I was going to go off and make my way in the world. Uh, this was going to change it quite dramatically. I thought that we would maybe get together. And we ended up, he was very clear with me. You know, I don't, I, if you have this child to support you, if I can, but we're not getting back together, I'll support you in any way I can. You know, in other words, it's your decision, and I'll help you. But, girl, we're not, we're not a couple anymore. And I just, I, 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 I just wanted, I wanted. See, see, this is where you and I are a little bit different because I had always wanted a child, always, always wanted a kid, and the idea that I was going to do it. And I wasn't going to do it right. And, and, and this pains me a little bit because, you know, people, I'll hear people dog on, on my, my cohort of, you know, single liberal, uh, women, you know, just like, oh, you want everything to be perfect. You want to wait for the perfect moment. Well, uh, no, I didn't want to wait for a perfect moment, but I didn't want to be underwater. <laughs> and it was so important to me that my thought then, I think my biggest fear when that happened was that I wouldn't get a chance to have a child that would be my only chance now that was me living in my own social experiment you really can't know how that's going to turn out till you roll the clock forward i'm now 47 years old it turns out that i never did get pregnant again now there's a lot of reasons for that um i could have gone down the ivf route and the fertility route and all those things i just i chose not to um I could have had a child on my own, you know, but like I wanted these things to line up and they didn't. And it had a profound effect on my life. For instance, I moved to New York. Uh, I don't think that my writing career would be nearly what it is right now. Um, But I don't know what that other thing would have been. Uh, There's a phrase called ambiguous loss that I learned in reading a book by Ada Calhoun called Why We're Not Sleeping. And it was applying to women that, you know, didn't have kids. And you don't really know what it is that you lost it could be great. It could be terrible. It could have been wonderful. It could have been just the same. I mean, I'm now, now this is sort of like Sarah's black mirror episode where like two lives or sliding doors, sliding doors is is better, you know, where like two lives exist and I can never really tell you which one would have been better. And I could torture myself over that. Um, I think on balance, I'm happy with where my life came out. I will tell you, I do have grief over that. Uh, that doesn't mean I regret it. But it does mean that I don't think it's an un, like for me it was not an un like an uncomplicated procedure
1: so the the ex boyfriend who said, "I will help you in any way I can what did that look like to you at the time, and would he have been required to help you like this is something that I think also people don't talk about enough, like what is legally required i mean not that you know what what would legally have been required of him? How far would you have gone? conceivably, hypothetically, to make sure that he did support you?
0: I I think it was such a gut, it was such a gut hit that he wasn't going to get back together with me and raise this, like I had this sense that like we should be together. And for him to say no was such a gut hit. My mind was really stuck in this place of like, he had started seeing somebody else and we both hung out at the bar all the time. We were, I'm, I'm a former, Lousy drunk, and you know, quit drinking about twelve years ago. But at the time, I was drinking quite a bit. In fact, as we were having this discussion, he was drinking scotch, and I was drinking, you know, diet coke or whatever. And the moment that I decided to have that uh, an abortion, I said, "Get me a scotch." You know, that was my signal. Like I'm staying on this train, and I'm not getting off. But what I remember flashing forward to in my mind was, I'm going to be living with my parents. He's going to be out at the bar. Like he can say, I will do everything I can to support you. I don't believe him. I, I don't, I don't know what he would have been legally responsible for. He's a good dude, but I could just, I just, I just was like, no effing way. Even if, even if he did pony up some money or whatever the the legal limits were, he's going to be out having fun. I'm going to be changing diapers with my mom and dad. Um, you know, it was really interesting. I I have put some thought into, well, would I've made a different decision if I'd had more support? In other words, like I just had the sense of like I don't want to be a single mom. Like I can't afford it. My parents are. I have to move in with my parents.
1: Did they know? Did your parents know?
0: No, I never told them. I told them many years later. And this is something that I'm writing about in my book. I have a second memoir that I'm working on, which is about, you know, being somebody that wanted to get married and wanted to have kids, but ended up doing having neither and sort of like, how did that happen? So I I told my parents, um, my dad was the hardest one. You know, it was, it was very, my dad, oh man, want to fix things, you know, like that's like, I know that's like a, it's like a knock on them, but like, it's also like a dear thing about them. And, um, this was like, mm, I was probably like 45 years old and I told him and he was like, you know, you know, you know, I could have taken early retirement. And I was like, oh, daddy, no, you, he's still, he's trying to fix it now. It's like you. 15 years later, 15 years later, he's going to take early retirement in the past to help me with my kids. I, I have to say that was, um. It was tough to see that. It was tough for my parents. Um, but at the time, I didn't want them to know about it. I, I really had a sense that, like, I don't need to tell anybody. And in fact, I, I'm I'm a confessionalist by trade. And I never told people about this for many, many years. Even as drunk as I was, I really just wouldn't even go into it. Uh, to the point where, like, a, like, it was probably I was in my late 30s. And I was talking to somebody. And like, I actually would forget that I had an abortion.
1: Why do you think that is? Because certainly there is a thread in the zeitgeist that's all about the shout your abortion kind of.
0: This was a little bit prior to <laughs> that. Yeah, that, yeah. This, was, yeah, this was a little bit prior to that, and I was working at Salon, and I was editing a lot of stories about abortion um, because that was really my lane. I was, I was basically a lifestyle editor there, and sort of working in the lane of feminism and women's lives, and um, and I would I would edit a story about abortion, and then I I would like get up and feel dizzy. And I, I the best my understanding is is like I just compartmentalized this. And and I'm not a particularly good compartmentalizer. This is not at all my superpower. My superpower is probably integration and living a little bit you know closer to the skin. And so this thing that I just kind of tucked away because it wasn't particularly convenient for me to think about and it really became much more more of a real deal to me as I I inched into my late 30s and I was realizing with almost like a, a little bit of a pain, like, oh my God, I didn't have a kid. You know, I, I was 40 years old when I put out my first book. And it was in the years after that, that this thing exploded inside me of like... Oh, my God, I think I only have a couple more years, which, by the way, it's a little bit darling that somebody in their early 40s is like, Oh, I only have a couple more years (laughs) because fertility (laughs) doctors were like, Are you sure? It's like, Yeah, times times, you know, moving on. And they're like, I think you might be past it. But anyway, you you know, these were all things I dealt with in my early 40s, for whatever reason. And, you know, I, it it's it's a it's a strange thing
1: i would also imagine and i don't mean to put words in your mouth that you know especially with all you've written about getting sober i'm sure you've wondered if you would have gotten sober at the time of having that baby if that would have been the catalyst
0: i do i do i i, I had a little bit of a like oh i could have I could have stopped drinking because, you know, even then, you know, I was, I was, I was 30 years old and I eventually quit at 35. But by the age of 30, I really had this awareness that like I drank too much that like there was this sense that I was living on kind of like cheap gas in the way, like, like that my life was sort of like too much hedonism, too much indulgence. There wasn't enough kind of like central purpose And I've been told that this is like a terrible reason to have a kid, but I also think it's like probably a really great reason to have a kid, which is that there's something other than you at the center of your life. And it struck me as something that I very much needed. Now, since then, so I do think I would have sobered up for a little while. Since then, um, I, I have suspected that I would have started drinking around the time that like somebody blew the whistle, you know? And I was I, I've had too many friends that were very heavy drinkers, especially in early motherhood, um, because you're home a lot. That you're bored. You're looking for some sort of comp, like. Companionship. Well, and there's the whole
1: mommy mommy needs a drink culture.
0: Hell yeah. You know, mom, I mean, I, the wine mom world. I think I would have become like number one mi- wine mom. Yeah. Me, look at me with my baby at the bar, you know, like, hey, drinking for two. Um and and who knows what that life would have been like i have so many friends that had really bad drinking problems after they had children
1: oh that's interesting yeah i mean i know what you mean about the the sort of guardrails on a life i mean it's something i think about i you know do not regret not having kids at all as you know and as i've talked about a lot but nonetheless i do sometimes find myself thinking about how I'm not sure nice is the word, but how maybe there might be an element of relief if there was something that was just sort of forcing me to go one way or the other. Like I've been in a very unsettled place for the last several years. I've kind of like, you know, I, I, when I I got divorced five years ago and then I moved back to New York from Los Angeles where I'd been a long time. And I kind of was like, well, I'm only here for a few years. And, you know, I had like, didn't have, you know, I like lived in a small apartment and I was just, I had one, I've had one foot out the door of my life for the last almost six years now. And it's, um, it's not a good way to live. It's really, I think it takes a toll that you don't, even really realize, you don't realize it's happening. You're like, well, it's okay. It's temporary. And I, this is my choice and I'm deciding to be this way. And if, you know, if I figure out this work project or get this thing out of the way, then I'll, I'll, you know, make, make a move in one direction. And, you know, I've sometimes thought, wow, like if, if I had a kid <laughs> that would, you know, n- not be the right thing for me. However, it would force me to say, okay, you're going to live here and you're going to live, this is the school that your kid is going to go to, and this is going to be his or her bedroom, and this is the house. And too bad if it's not like your, your dream domicile, and this is what it is. And I, I, I get the appeal of that, actually.
0: I do, too. You know, our, um, what do I want to call her? I was going to say predecessor Pro, anyway, Elizabeth Wurzel is who I'm going to right oh, now. Oh yes, uh-huh. uh huh. People, know, people. If
1: you don't know who she is, she's the author of Prozac Nation. That was her big breakout. Uh, she's she's one of those '90s gals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, she really paved the way in terms of first-person writing for women, I think. Um and I have mixed feelings on her as I suspect you do too, but she can be a hell of a writer sometimes. Anyway, I I read something she wrote that that stayed with me and it was about being single and childless in her 40s and she said something to the extent that, you know, if you end up not having kids, you end up by your 40s in constant existential crisis because of the sort of constant focus on self. Now, I I think you and I are also in an existential crisis because of what's happened in our industry and in the
1: world. Good segue, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you. I I, I don't think I'm in existential crisis, actually. I I, because I do. I'm so, so, so lucky that my work fulfills me. It definitely frustrates me. And I've definitely had to make a pivot. And it's definitely been a, a super challenging time. But at the end of the day, I feel that I know why I am on this earth. Okay. And that is an incredible privilege. Like just that is a great luck to have that feeling about your life. Um Yeah. But,
0: I get but, I feel like I've gotten to live a life that women of previous generations it would have been unthinkable yeah, a, oh. a life of travel and art and personal exploration i mean just like the freedom oh, that yeah. i had we would have have been that, i would
1: have been a nun i would have been a nun i think if, <laughs> like if i had if i lived 150 years ago i i think i could have like romanticized my way to <laughs> life in a convent or something.
0: Oh, you would have been the (laughs) coolest nun. I think I would have been like a total, like full on mom. And like, uh, I, I, part of me might've loved it and then had this like aching, unfulfilled part of me that I never could, could express. But, um, but, but the thing is, is that like, um, you know, I, yeah, I never, I never want to lose sight of how much this has given me. And then of course there have been sacrifices and I can never fully weigh them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that's the thinking about yourself all the time. I mean, one thing I will say, I think in marriages where there are not children, and I'm not actually talking about anyone in particular, but, you know, having just sort of observing marriages around me, if you don't have kids, your marriage is right in front of your face all the time. Your relationship, whatever, Similar whether or not you are married, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's in front of your face, and so you're just picking it apart all of the time. And children are a real distraction from that. I mean, they're a distraction from a bad marriage, and they're um, a glue
0: in many ways. Yes, you know, that yes. it's it's that's such a good point.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, none of these are reasons to to have kids, obviously, um, but yeah, I think that's interesting that that uh, Lizzie, Lizzie Wurzel, God rest her soul. The late pat- Lizzie Wurzel. The late Lizzie Wurzel, yeah. It was so funny when she, when she died, was it a few years ago now, for some reason, I mean, I never, I barely knew her. I maybe met her one or a few, t- one or two times. And I kept getting media calls to, um, you know, Give a quote about her. Like I
0: think I was quoted in the New York Times obituary for some reason. See, I, I can totally I, see that. I think that that's why I was looking for whatever word I was looking for, where I was like prototype or progenitor or whatever the hell I was. Grow was going like with. We're her protege? Yeah, well, something I like. I do that. think of you in particular as somebody who is in that lane. I but don't know But she was why. a hot but-
1: mess. It was. I mean, she was like. It's, she was. We were not the same personality type. To, no, to you're way. not the
0: same personality type, but you were young and you were brash and you were blonde and you were attractive and you were writing about. <laughs> obsessed about... with dogs. She was obsessed with her dog, too. So that we have
1: that in common, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think also, by the way, like in the memoir genre, like hot mess is like going to be. I mean, that's like kind of like one out of every three of us, one every one, half of us.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to be a hot mess on the page. I mean, that's the thing is when you're writing first person. You have to sort of um, th- there has to be a layer of drama onto the narrative that you hopefully don't have in your real life. I think the persona on the page is a is a exaggerated version. Of yes. and I think the you, you're making
0: the, the the point that she was, in fact, a hot mess in real she life. Was actually, she was actually she was actually a really bad hot mess. She worked at the <laughs> Dallas Morning News here. And oh, that's you know, people, right. People still tell stories about that about that, uh, I think, I think year or summer that she worked there. Um, but, and you are somebody that has a lot of, uh, a lot more sort of like control and, uh, yeah, I didn't
1: have the, uh, yeah, I didn't have quite the, uh, the cocaine addled, uh, party girl aspect
0: to me. Right. You know, other, like I was a mess in, in
1: many ways, in many, many ways,
0: but, um, Young, brash and blonde, though, I'm still going to write a I'm going to write a a, a trend story about the two of you.
1: Okay, go for it. I was going to say, please, you you can you can wait, you know, wait till I die. But uh, hopefully it won't be that. uh, Hopefully that will not be the occasion for the piece. I, you know, (laughs) my friend, I have a friend who used to say, so, you know, um, you know, there was this sort of like trope of women, you know, there would be like a, a sort of famous author and then her best friend who was also a writer, but not as famous. And the, and the, the, the like Lucy Greeley. And, I was going to say um, Ann Patchett. Yeah, And, and Ann Patchett. And, and and Lucy Ann Patchett. Right. And then there was like Caroline Knapp and somebody else. Oh, and, and
0: uh, 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 the other person, I can't remember whose book I read, but it was nice. Right.
1: Exactly. And so my friend Allison used to say that she was going to, she was going to wait for me to die. And then she was going to write a book called Dead Megan. And that was going to be her <laughs> breakout. That was going to be her debut onto the literary stage
0: that's fantastic uh,
1: yeah and actually i did get you know i had a freak illness about uh, 10 years ago and i almost that's did right. die and she actually she came to the hospital she lost and she, her book deal and she, said, she said damn i almost had dead megan that's...
0: yes <laughs> can you think about somebody else for once megan i know sorry yeah. yeah, we're glad um, you're still here. So, okay.
1: So, yeah, let's talk about um, our dead, our dead uh, industry, our dead yeah, media industry. It. What happened? So, um, you and I were recently uh, tarred as neocons uh, by somebody on Twitter. Um, and the context was like, wow, it's really sad what's happened to, um, you know, Megan Dow and Sarah Heppala, you know, that they became neocons. I used to really look up to them and enjoy their work.
0: It was amazing to me because it was the first time anybody had called me a neocon, to my knowledge. And I found myself, at first I laughed, but then as the day went on, I was like really, I was like really obsessed with like, what, what created this, this idea in this person's mind? What did I write? What did I, I actually had this thought of like Did I tag a neocon Was I was I seen <laughs> With a neocon recently uh, yeah. What is my adjacency um, And in fact I even went I, I went to Wikipedia's neocon page To read about neocons oh, really? to, see if, to see if it had a, a Sort of concept creep that I wasn't aware Of because I was like Okay I think when I think of neocons I think Of like George W. Bush and yeah neocons By and,
1: the way for people who aren't familiar. Familiar. A neocon is a neoconservative. And we associate this with like, you know, the kind of the, the conservative movement as it was manifesting in like the early 90s kind of thing. Right. Like sort of, you know, yeah. there's also neoliberals. There's neoliberals, by the way. I, I think I'm a neoliberal
0: still. I, I, I'm more neo-soul. I don't know. Oh, That's Erica you Badu. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where. I don't know what my category is, but I'll tell you what, if I was firmly in the pocket of liberal dogma at any time in my life, it was during the Bush years.
1: Well, so, exactly. I thought George W. Bush was the worst person on earth. And and when he was reelected, I honestly thought that was the worst thing that had ever happened in the history of America.
0: <laughs> I know. Talk about talk about like like the future teaching you that you were a little bit exaggerated <laughs> in like, the past.
1: Walk across glass to have him uh. back as president. Oh, I know. I
0: I did go to the George W. Bush Museum. I actually, again, this is I'm too preoccupied with why I was called a neocon. But I was like, I did go to the Bush Museum. It's here in Dallas. Oh Well, maybe Maybe, that's why. Maybe the person saw you there. Yeah, maybe they saw me there. Maybe I'd I'd put it on social media and I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, I do. I have this sort of like, uh, you know, I have this like regret and nostalgia for Bush. And anyway, the idea I have been over the past, I would say five years is where it's happened that people have said, wow, you're so much more conservative than I thought you were. Or wow, you're really like, you're really like a Republican. What are you, some kind of Republican? Which is, it's very interesting. It's very telling of this moment that people use that as a tar. You know, the way to shut you down, especially the way to shut me down, is to basically say you're sounding a lot like a Republican. And... This was over something what over what like for instance Okay well one of those was about I was having a conversation with somebody about guns and I I remember saying that you know they're 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 really that's like valid reasons to have guns, especially if you live in areas where you don't have police nearby. I mean, this is something you learn in Texas, because especially when people live out in the country, you can't just go like to the corner and call 911. And And there's a lot of valid reasons for gun culture. And she was just like, God, you are becoming a Republican. And to me, it always felt like it was the moment when I was introducing that their side wasn't as simple as they thought it was. And so it felt like a shutdown. The one that, I mean, where I really ran afoul of li- liberal dogma uh, was around the fact that I, well, I I got sober twelve years ago, and in 2015 I put out a book called Blackout, which had a lot of stories and reflection on my own life, uh, on my on my years as a heavy drinker. There was a lot of talk in there around sex. And it's blurry areas when you get into the the drinking culture, which is what I came out of and what I thought, what I knew at the time, most cultures were still steeped in. And there was this incredible resistance to talk about drinking and its role in these sexual assault statistics that we were seeing, you know. Uh, early on in researching my book, I interviewed a blackout expert. I don't want to name him because I don't think he would ever avow this this phrase now, but he was speaking sort of pre me, too. And he said, look, if we got rid of alcohol on these campuses, 98 percent of these cases would go away. And that became something that was, you know, no, 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 alcohol has nothing to do with it. We're not we're looking at predatory behavior. This is like uh, these are these are serial predators. This is rape culture. It was a very different lens on which they wanted to look through what I understood to be some in many ways, like really awful outgrowths of of hookup culture and binge drinking on college campuses. And that was something that, you know, what am I, some kind of rape apologist? Which that was a phrase. The first time I heard it, it shut me down so hard because I was just like, well, no. And then later I was like, well, what does that even mean? Yeah, it's one of those grab you by the collar. It la- grabbed me by the collar.
1: That really is meaningless at this point. Mm-hmm.
0: Somebody should apologize for rape.
1: Well, somebody should apologize for calling so many people rape apologists. <sighs>
0: start God. there and, yeah and and so i i went through a few years of feeling like i, I oh the other one here's another one that got called me called a republican you ready for a phrase personal responsibility
1: oh that's Ooh, my that's that's, that's, a dog violence. Soul. that's literal violence Sarah. Literal i'm gonna have violence. to bleep, i'm gonna have to bleep that out of the podcast Personal responsibility—that is patriarchal, that is white supremacy, that is uh, what else? It's—it's um, it's just uh, you're policing. You're you're policing women's lives.
0: Yeah, and and it was something that I didn't quite understand. You know, I was I went into AA in 2010, 2011. 2011 and um, you know that was a program of personal responsibility. It was really about a kind of personal reckoning of what you've done in your life and, and, you know, who do you need, you know, how can you see eye to eye with the world again? How can you be somebody that feels proud of who you were and where you came from? What are the, what are the amends you need to do? What are the changes in your life you need to make? Well, anyway, that was such the business for me of like 2012, 2013, 2014. And at the same time, I'm starting to see these articles come out that are sort of like, this is not about the woman. This is not on women. And I was like, but if but if it's not on women, then women can't ch- ch- change. Well, I mean, it's this
1: utopian vision. I mean, yes, it would be great to live in a world where people could get blackout drunk and nothing would ever happen to them. Anybody, men or women. It would be great to live in a world where a woman could pass out um, on the sidewalk in the middle of a big city and somebody would very nicely call her friend and have her get home safely. But that's never going to happen. I mean, no, let's, and let's I, work I have, with what we
0: have. I have to say, as somebody that had come out of my own very serious drinking problem, I really didn't understand quite the desire to fight for our blackouts in the way that 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 conversation was doing, you know, like uh, there was a I want to get a, as blackout drunk as I want to and like do you realize there's other there's other consequences to that like it's actually not very healthy there's a lot of uh like it's blackout BAC in in some cases is not that far from where you start to shut the body starts to shut down because the brain is starting to shut down. Anyway, I hate to be a buzzkill. I I really I'm not I never wanted to take like I'm not uh, don't not a prohibitionist really don't want to take people's booze away really will always love my drinkers out there. I was one of you for a long time. That's not what this is about. But to me, it didn 't seem like it was a re- realistic way to look at the world and its consequences, and that if you want to arm young women to walk through the world with more confidence and also safer, then you would focus on that and It just seemed like that was there was like a prohibition. I started to feel the fundamentalist zap that I had felt from my childhood I grew up in I grew up in Dallas in a pretty conservative part of the city in the eighties and fundamentalism was all around me. And there was a lot of like, you can't say that you can't do that. You can't, like there was a lot of do not cross tape. And one of the reasons that I was drawn towards liberalism and the liberal Valhalla of Austin in the nineties, where I finally felt like I found my spiritual home was this idea of life as you could be intellectually curious. You could be you could be expansive. You could you could listen to dangerous art. Like all of this was so like, that's what sort of fed my soul and formed my personality. And all of a sudden I was starting to see the zaps coming from the left. You can't say that. You're not allowed to do that. Like, don't talk about that. Don't mention that. And it's like, wait a minute, what? Don't listen to those people, you know? I mean, you know, I you, you get into a place where like, I look I love listening to fascinating deep challenging thinkers and I got to a place where it was like I didn't want people to know I was listening to Joe Rogan in the same way that like you know when I was a kid I didn't want people to know I was listening to to heavy metal it's like well that's the devil's music like what if people find out that I'm listening yeah, to the devil's music of Joe Rogan
1: you know it's amazing a, I, a lot of people maybe under 30 say have absolutely no idea that it was once the the republicans it was the political right that was the purity police it was completely flipped around i mean i've had conversations with students like grad students and they they don't know this they they think that the the people on the right have always been sort of hedonistic and you know, what? just slinging their guns around and, uh, oh, yeah. And sort of to say whatever you and want and, and, and say whatever you want. Say, so, you know, say, you know, shooting, you know, th- that it's really the people on the right who are shooting their mouths off. Say, say what they don't want you to say, say what everybody's thinking, but are afraid to say, they associate that with the right. Oh my and, God.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah.
1: And they don't have any idea that, that, you know, that the whole church lady sketch <laughs> that yeah. that wasn't that long ago. But it was a completely different ethos.
0: That is so interesting because, of course, like hedonistic culture and the counterculture, like that's basically (laughs) where so much of that comes from is from the, the growth of of like liberalism throughout the 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 60s and 70s and through the 80s and 90s it yeah, was but, always associated with a much more libertine culture a much more accepting culture especially around things like like sexuality which at the time was very taboo
1: yeah i mean the left won the culture wars the I left mean, won is, the culture wars like you know the right controls the the political you know many many in, in many many ways the far right has sort of political chokehold on, on our country um, legislatively. Not always, obviously, depends on the states. But but the, at the end of the day, I mean, do you think that, that culture sort of supersedes politics? I mean, culture affects our day-to-day lives in a way that, at least until last week, politics really didn't.
0: Well, I was going to say, I feel like this overturning of Roe v. Wade is a real smack in the face to the idea that, like, culture rules the day, right? Like you can have all the celebrities you want on your team and you can have a bunch of movies in Hollywood, talk about woke politics, but is that going to change life on the ground of what it is to be a young woman and what you can do with your body? I mean, this is, I, I, for decades, I just thought like, who would even be a Republican? Like, why would you ever do it? Because everything I turned to my music, my movies, my books, my fr- everybody was liberal. It just felt like that was the side. Oh, yeah. It was no fun
1: to be a Republican. It was definitely not the fun party.
0: It was not the fun party at all. But now, I mean, I feel like the dance has changed and I don't know Democrat is so fun.
1: We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week, and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official unspeakable podcast, Nuanced AF Merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast's webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Well, I want to, Delve a little bit more into how we became neocons, but actually, before I forget, I want to circle back to something along the lines of you know women drinking too much, a lot of these you know the the idea that men are always responsible. Um, you know, how do you feel about the whole your skirt was too short kind of logic? Because this is something I really struggle with because obviously wearing a short skirt is not licensed for a man to do anything to you. Wh- whistle at you, say something obscene to you, let alone assault you. However, I i, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like if you don't want men to look at you in a certain way on the street or talk to you a certain way, you shouldn't dress like that. Now, what do we do with I You're just such
0: said. a Republican. Well, yes, I suppose so. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, neocon.
1: I don't even um, have, I don't even, I'm not even a mother and I'm saying that, okay?
0: So I think this is fascinating and I've thought a lot about it. One of the things that I think is that through the kind of pop sexualization of women, uh, one of the things that happened was that fashions became so popular. That were denuded of their sexual power for a lot of women. In other words, I've met so many young women that were wearing things like mini skirts or little, um, like halter tops, not because they wanted to be sexy, but because they were fashionable and they saw their other friends wearing them, and they didn't have a full sense of the valence of what they were doing. You know, I mean, I think there's it's like I don't know if you know any like uh, young teenagers are really interesting to study here on this one. You know, as as young women are coming into their bodies and they're starting to put on like a bikini and like, if it's, a, if it's a kid that's just hit puberty and you're just kind of like, you know, as the older person, you're like, whoa, this has totally changed. Like your body just has tractor beams now. And this is something that I think for a lot of women, they don't always have a sense of their own erotic power. What they are saying is a kind of sexual signaling. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it or they shouldn't wear it. But it's something that in America, we've been a little bit numbed to where like, if you travel in the Middle East, and you show your arms, like you're there, like, what are you doing on certain parts of the Middle East, not all of them. So, you know, I think that we've become Come, kind of desensitized to that, and I sympathize with both parties on this one. Uh, I sympathize with the woman that's like, "Hey, I'm wearing a short skirt. That doesn't. That's not permission." And I also sympathize with the guy that's like, "Hey, she's wearing a short skirt. That's a. That's an open for business sign." And I've heard that from both sides. And how are you going to resolve this? And who has the burden of resolving it? You know, one idea is that you could, I I guess, think more about what kind of image you want to portray or et cetera, et cetera. Or you could expect other people to change their minds. I I just I don't think asking people to change their minds is usually a good way, is like a good tack. You know, in, in A.A., In AA, there's a saying, which is you can wear slippers or you can carpet the world. And I remember telling this to a friend of mine who disagrees on a lot of these issues with me. We would have a lot of a lot of arguments about this. And I was bringing up the case of, you know, like you can change your behavior or you can try to change the world's behavior. You can try to carpet the world. And she looked at me and she was like, you know what, I'm going to carpet the world. And I was Wait a like, second.
1: Which is bad? Sorry. I'm like trying to follow this. Oh, you go yeah, ahead. The, which, which are you supposed to do? Wear the slippers or carpet the world? Well, which
0: one would be easier?
1: Well, I hate carpet. This is a really bad analogy for me because, as anybody who knows my work knows, I cannot anything with carpet is just anathema. But okay,
0: but when most people of, would say it would be easier to wear slippers than to try to carpet the world.
1: But I so, but is it like carpeting the world? Sort of not. Is it is that like not having a boundary, or is it like trying to change the world? It's like
0: trying to trying to change the world. In a way that might be unrealistic. Just, okay. So like what we're asking people
1: to change their behaviors to sort of satisfy our own neuroses or needs or just Or just your own needs. Yeah. I wouldn't even right. say neuroses, okay. but like you,
0: you you can change yourself or you can try to change everyone else. Okay. And my friend was saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to try to change everyone else. And I was like, really? good, good luck to you. Yeah. So,
1: I mean certainly norms can be changed. I mean, plenty of behaviors have been sort of socially engineered out of the culture. People don't smoke the way they do. Do they not? Well, okay. You know what's a good, okay, here's a better example. People don't litter. The way they once did, right? Yeah, like, it's true. And people don't know,
0: smoke. I just happen to smoke. Yeah, no, so I, I not. But I
1: mean, it. you can't smoke indoors the you way can't you can't smoke indoors. No, it's, it's a hell of a lot. It's a I'm hell of a lot harder. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot harder to smoke than than it, it used to be. Believe me, because I used to I used to do it and uh, quite quite enjoyed it. But um, uh, you know, something like littering, it's completely taboo now to like throw something. Um, you know, throw trash on the ground. So, you know, it it is possible to change behaviors, but, you know, things like the way that certain kinds of men relate to women on the street, that is something that the feminist blogosphere, especially, you know, maybe six or seven years ago was really interested in. I'm not going to say preoccupied with, but definitely interested in, there was the cat calling, you know, I, I, you know, there was a lot of talk about male behavior on the streets. There was a lot of talk about women being harassed when they walk down the street. And I, I had, you know, many, you know, I've, I've had students, young female students write personal essays about how they feel about being cat called. And, you know, it's, it's never discussed the the, the fact is that the men that are doing that have, generally speaking so much less power than the women they're doing that to oh, especially yeah, it's the kinds think of actually, women.
0: yeah i think it's actually like a a kind of domination uh in terms of like it's 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 one way that i can get up on you rich white girl
1: and they're signaling to their friends i mean the guys who are standing around on the corner catcalling women you know as a, as a friend of mine said you know he said those guys never get laid like those are the lowest guys on the totem pole, and they are basically what they're saying to their buddy every time they do that is, "I'm not gay exactly that's what that's what they're doing and And you know, so for like a white middle class w- young woman going to work in the morning and being whistled up by guys on the street, construction workers, whatever, for her to complain about that, it just, it's, it's so unexamined. Um, and it always really bothered me. And also the fact is that, you know, women, black women, for instance, get way worse catcalling than white women. I mean, those guys on the corner are, are doing it. To women of color, I think a hell of a lot more intensely than to a lot of white women. At least this is what I've observed in New York. Obviously, it de- really depends on where you are. But nobody but, ever I've looks only, at this.
0: I've only ever been catcalled in in New York. I, this is never. I've never had this experience in other places. I mean, maybe like some construction workers have like sort of stopped and watched me or something, but like. I've only ever been catcalled in New York. Oh, that's
1: funny. You know, it's so weird because like maybe in the last 10 years, I remember thinking, I guess it was when I moved back to New York because I had been living in L.A. where nobody walks down the street. So you don't really get catcalled. But when I moved back to New York, when I was in my sort of like my mid 40s, I was like, wow, I guess I guess like, you know their political correctness has really like taken hold here or something because yeah, the guys just don't catcall anymore. I guess they've really gotten the message. Like, I guess feminism really, you know, had its way. And then it's like, uh, no, Megan, it's because you are 46 years old. That's what? why you're not being catcalled. What? <laughs> like, what? Did not, uh, that was not the, the first thing that, that came to my mind. So,
0: uh, yeah, you know, though, th- this, this reminds me though, you know, of, of some of the conversations that you and I would have privately over these years, I would, I, I was always struck by the, the, the wealth of stories about women's lack of safety, that women were unsafe and they were scared and they were scared in the world. And it was so scary to, and, and it was really baffling to me. Because I couldn't figure out, was I an idiot? Uh, did I miss something? Because, you know, like when I was 25 years old, I, I drove around the country by myself. I slept in national parks by myself. There were people that told me it wasn't, was dangerous and I didn't think it was. I thought I was well prepared. And I mean, I did some stupid stuff, but... How
1: are you well prepared? I might be scared to sleep in a national park by myself, but because uh, of well, bears.
0: It, yeah. I mean, the thing is is that I was doing car camping. And so you're like when you're car oh, camping. You're sleeping in your car. You're, you're right. Not in your car, but you have your tent right next to your car. Okay. And right. so there's people within walking distance. A lot of the oh. national parks were very family oriented. Okay. So it would be a lot of like there were couples around me and I would know them. You know, uh I, I mean I did have some some creepy interactions. Mostly they they were other anyway. Okay. I get I, it. I was you're not
1: doing like a Chris McCandless thing, like sleeping out in the middle of
0: Alaska. Um, like, yeah. Know. And it wasn't okay. a, a Cheryl Strayed's wild, you know, like hiking across the the Pacific God Crest knows. Trail. Yeah, You'd have an entirely um, different but it was, career. I
1: wouldn't be able to book you if uh, it was a Cheryl Strayed uh, No, scenario, so. exactly.
0: But it was quite an adventure. And it was a, it was one that I took alone. And... <clears throat> There were a lot of people that were uncomfortable with it. And I just never had that sense. I I never had that sense that I couldn't do that. And, And it worried me that there was an increasing sense that women were vulnerable. Women were like, I understand wanting to create the awareness of that. But if you give that message too much, it can be, it can shrink your world instead of expand it. You start not doing things.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially it's funny because it it so depends on what you're used to. It, because people in the city, you know, become terrified when they go out into the country. People from the city are terrified of serial killers like when they oh go God. out into the country.
0: They are convinced that the country is like 90% serial killers.
1: Yeah. So, but then people in the country who are from rural areas are convinced that everybody in the city is, a, a, you know, a murderer, or someone's going to stab you in, in an alley. So, um, you know, it, but yeah, I do, you know, certainly I know, a, a, I know a number of women who have been violently attacked. I mean, I certainly know women who have had things happen, like somebody breaks through the window and rapes them and like stranger rape, like horrific kinds of crimes. So that, that definitely does happen. But yeah, like this idea that every time you walk out of your home and are out in the world, that somehow you're fighting this insurmountable battle, that is the kind of rhetoric that I started noticing around 2014, 2015, which, you know, getting back to the whole premise of this conversation is I think when people like you and me started to feel out of step with the narrative, like that's when I started saying like, Whoa, wait a second. All of you guys who, you know, were pretty, you know, pretty much feeling like you were on top of the world as women for the last 15, 20 years, suddenly you're like really into this idea that it's incredibly hard to be you. And I
0: still don't know where that came from. Yeah, I I I I don't either. I felt destabilized by it. I felt a lot of like, is it me? Am, am I just am I the only one? Am I am I? And so this is, you know, leading up to why I wrote that piece for the Atlantic was that there were several years of me watching various stories explode, you know, I think also like the pile on around certain artists that we'd once loved. I mean, the Woody Allen situation, like all these things, you know, people that, that it it was, it seemed, all these stories seemed so much more complicated than what I was seeing, but to bring up the complication was to to get the fundamentalist zap again, you know, like how could you be on that side? How dare you? And you know, so I was I was starting to retreat from stories. Uh, I was staying in lanes like I was writing for a magazine here called Texas Highways. I mean, it was just sort of more like travel pieces. I was trying to stay in safe harbors. I was trying to stay away from this culture war stuff. And believe me, it it took about four years before I did not I could. Finally had to say, like, "I don't think you can avoid the culture wars anymore."-hmm
1: So what made you finally decide to write the piece?:
0: I mean, I think it was a sense that I was either going to stop my career as a writer, or I was going to start a different kind of writing. And I didn't know what I'd do. I mean, this is I've thought about quitting writing so many times over the years. The problem is, I could never figure out what the hell else I would do.
1: Yeah, I have the same problem.
0: Yeah. I'm worthless basically <laughs> in others like my skill sets are very Yeah, are, I know. Are, Talk are about regret. If,
1: if I could go back, the biggest regret I have is not like getting really good at something else and also writing. Like that was my mistake. I just I just uh, kind of went went for broke and quite literally succeeded.
0: But I yeah, I know yeah, we, we did we both went for broke Ta-da! I needed, I was also about 10 years into sobriety and I realized that one of the problems I had was that, you know, like, like a lot of my drinking had been around people pleasing and a lot of my early sobriety was around trying to keep this idea that like people still like me, right? Right. Everybody still likes me. I really, you know, um, I needed to let go of this need to be liked that was keeping me back. Because if I needed to be liked by everyone, I was finding that I was not liking myself so much, wasn't really respecting what I was doing. so so I needed to break out of that. And I also think that, look, are we in this or not? Like, the only like, if you're a writer, this is what's this time is fascinating. Oh, I know. This time is fascinating. I remember like when I was a little kid, um, not a kid, I was in high school. My my English teacher had a a line on the wall from, from William Faulkner and it said, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. And I just, I loved that. It made total sense to me. And, you know, if you want to look at like the human heart in conflict with itself, it's like, Go anywhere these days, like that is what the world is, and there is there is like by talking about it, you run the risk of being unpopular, you run the risk of falling afoul of people that that think you're on the wrong side of history or think you're wrong but i i I allow that it's like. It's a brave act to work out this stuff in public, as I think that you've done. You know, um, I think si- podcasts like this, podcasts like The Fifth Column have given me courage that I wasn't alone in my thinking. You know, we've become so isolated sometimes. And as I, you know, I'm somebody that I don't have a husband. You know, I, I, I don't have... a school that I'm going to talking to other moms or whatever people's social circles are. And so you start to get in your own head, like, I guess I'm just old. I don't really. And then, you know, you start to be connected to people through either through someone else's words on a podcast or maybe through their communities or online communities or whatever it is. And you start to realize like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Everybody's just
1: shutting that up. Yeah, I know. And that in and of itself is the story of our time, I think. The very phenomena that you just described, that is the essence of the heart being in conflict with itself. The fact that you can't talk about the heart being in conflict with itself is like the best show in town when it comes to subject matter.
0: It really is. It really is. And you know the 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 way that people project certainty on topics that are like completely uncertain the 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 way that they uh, project a certain kind of politics, whether it's around feminism or equality or whatever it is, and have a life that looks very different. You know, all that stuff is really fascinating to me, but. But it's like we can't quite get to it because there's this force field of outrage and scorn. And for me, for a long time, that force field was enough to shut me down. I just didn't want to make contact with it. So maybe if I stay very still, the tornado will not touch me.
1: So you must have people writing to you and coming up to you all the time now and thanking you. I mean, what kinds of reactions are you getting?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think after the Atlantic article, especially, I think there was a lot of that. And and, and I've also wondered if there's also a, at the same time, like a slow, cautious step away from me for certain people. You know, they're sort of like, uh, she's an I think she's a neocon. I think she tagged a neocon <laughs> on Twitter. So she's got it's hard, it's, it's, it's hard
1: to tell if they're actually just backing away from you or if they just forgot you exist. I mean, well, that's, that's the, the other
0: thing <laughs> I haven't put out a book in seven friggin or, or years. Just they're
1: not thinking about you. They're not you know, thinking it's, about it's hard you. To say, like, well, I didn't get invited to this, you know, conference or festival. And it's like, well, no, they just like didn't think of you that year. Don't. Yeah, don't, I know. Uh,
0: I I've never actually been very good at being able to gauge my so-called literary clout or cachet, you know, like I, I, I would have, I would have no idea what, what that is. What I know is that, um, people, uh, yeah, a lot of people reached out to me. I think a lot of people know that, that I'm someone that they can come to with their own complications. I do worry as I, as I get slotted into the whatever we call this heterodox problematic. Uh I think heterodox is not working
1: because too many people don't know what it means and think it's a sexual orientation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm finding. That's really funny. Yeah. Okay, but yes, once you're you're in this space, the um the uh I just I call it the free think space.
0: Yeah. Once you're in the free thing space. I mean, I do worry that, you know, I have, I have friends in so many different areas of life. I have friends that are, you know, that are conservative and I have friends that have transitioned and I have friends that have kids that have transitioned. And I have friends that have kids that and they're freaked out that they might trans like they're, they're Oh, like, you're talking
1: oh. about gender transition, not political transition. Sorry. Oh, I, yeah, I thought sorry. we were back at the a neocon switch there because you and I have transitioned into neocon, evidently. Oh gosh, so, yes, yeah. You're no, talking sorry. About gender. I
0: meant yeah, a yeah, friend that's okay. trans. Yeah. Um so ah oh, language. Um but yeah, I I I worry. But but again, this is like I have to live my life and 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 not I can't spend my time worrying about what other people might think about me it would it would um yeah, it would lock me up,
1: yeah, well, I mean, and i i as you and I have talked about, I just think there are so many people feeling exactly the way you felt and we have felt i mean so you you uh were part of the original sort of brain trust of the unspeak easy, which is my heterodox, for lack of a better term, women's community that I'm building. And, um, you know, I think people have heard me say this before. I think, you know, part of the reason that in this kind of, you know, ecosystem of podcasters, the fifth column and blocked and reported and, um, you know, a lot of the substack journalists, there are a handful of women for sure, but it tends to be very male dominated. Super Um, male dominated. And I think that one of the reasons is that women are just... More sensitive to the social penalties that come from speaking out, um, they don't I think you're be, onto something. Yeah, they women don't want to be
0: peacemakers, and right? And they don't want to be
1: uh, excommunicated by the other women oh, by their the own social peers. exile is how yeah. And the thing is too, so like you know, a lot of people when we talk about getting canceled or whatever, it's you know happening to people in the workplace, m- men and women, but I think women are not only getting it. Uh, on a professional level, but they're getting it socially. They're getting kicked out of their Facebook group or, you know, some Facebook group or their book club or things are, are really tense. So, so, you know, as as you know, this is part of the reason that I've started the unspeak easy. But you know, you have actually a very funny story. So we I took 10 women out to the desert in Joshua Tree to do a, a you know three, three or four day brainstorming session over what this um, what this project could be and um, you know, there were a couple of us who were journalists, but mostly it was it was women who represented different sort of corners. There were, you know, somebody it was a, a lawyer. There was somebody who's a public policy person, someone in education, someone in the theater. And everyone sort of brought something to the table. But you have i don't maybe you can tell the story You have a very funny story about you rented about when a I was car driving up and you drove up and I was driving um, up, yeah. yeah,
0: ok. so uh, th- i was I was driving up, and I believe I was listening to Andrew Sullivan. And you were driving I, it from the airport from LAX. You were driving, driving from LAX to, to the desert. To the, yeah, and so I was listening to Andrew Sullivan, and I have a long-standing habit of turning down my my podcast so that nobody can hear what it is. And as I was driving in, it was like the the quarters were a little bit tighter, and I I could. I I turned down the the volume. um, So wait, you were on like a
1: road, you were on like the desert road
0: going into
1: 29 Palms or something. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so then as I, as I pull into the place where we're staying, it's a little bit loud, but I've got the windows up and I'm sort of like, Oh gosh, I hope nobody heard that, you know, and I turn it down. (laughs) And as I get out of the car, uh, somebody else there goes, Oh my God, is that the, were you just listening to Andrew Sullivan? I was just listening to that. Um, And it was really cute.
1: It was an incredible time. I mean, I just we we laughed really hard and we learned a lot of stuff. And uh, I just i'm I'm really excited about this. But I, you know, going back to the reason I'm curious what kinds of responses you're getting to your sort of coming out here is that, you know, I, people have gone onto the mailing list, and I have hundreds and hundreds of women who've signed up. You know, for the mailing list for the unspeakeasy, and I have them sort of ask, answer a few questions about what issues they're most interested in, and you know, in, in what way, why they would want to be a part of this community. And the answers are just so moving, and like. Heartbreaking, and like, I feel like I'm crazy. I feel like I'm the only one. I feel like I'm a bad person, and I am a liberal. I have never voted for a Republican. And by the way, this is not a, a, a partisan group. Republicans, I, I hope that there are Republicans and Democrats and everybody in between. This is not a political group, but it's just like one after the other, and they are piling up and piling up. And these are women from everywhere in the world. Australia, Europe, Canada, as well as North America, everywhere. And they represent every, you know, I'm hearing from women in finance and women in medicine Mm -hmm. and in the arts. It's not just like the people in the media and podcasters banging on about this stuff. And so that's why I think it's like this, it's an incredible thing that's happened with the discourse where like, It really is an emperor's new clothes kind of thing because people are being silenced because they believe that what they think is an outlying position when in fact it's absolutely the majority position.
0: It's not. And there's so much silent estrangement. And that is the kind of stuff that that art and thinkers and writers should be should be aiming toward is to bridge that that gap. Um, and, and I think like, I loved being at that weekend retreat. One of the things that was just such a delight was knowing that like, it was almost like, almost like, uh, deprogramming camp or something. Like you, you, you didn't have to be like, I'm sorry that I listened to this one thing that you guys might not approve of. It was like, you know, or like, I know you're going to think I'm, I'm sexist, but like the, a lot of right. things. We that, didn't have that any throat clearing. We didn't have a lot of that throat clearing. You could just be human. And people would take you as a fully human person that might have different views from them, but was meaning well. I mean, one of the things that I saw happen over the last few years was the flattening of people into these categories racist, sexist, uh, predator misogynist. And it's like, then I can just dismiss you with a finger flick. When you reduce somebody to a word, that is the opposite of what I want to be doing with my work and what I want to be doing with my life, which is to get into the human story and the human complications underneath and find the common areas where our fingers link together. I mean, that's what I felt so much of in this weekend. And also that everybody was just so excited to be together. You know, there was... I think I don't know. I, you'd have to quiz the other women. I've always had trouble with women's spaces, um, oh, me too. I, but it's
1: hilarious that I'm doing this because i've i was I've always been the like, you know, not I'm not into like the women's y Sort, sort well, of in a way, because I have
0: an allergy to like woo-woo stuff and also have an allergy to like, like self-help things, which always seems to be like the category that if you're doing a woman's thing, it always ends oh, yeah, up no, There in. was no
1: self-care involved in this, No, the way. it's always was, like no. turn
0: to the person on your right and tell <laughs> oh, them something nice no, no, about no, no, them. No. And it's we just didn't like, even have yoga. Get me the fuck out of here. Yeah, I know.
1: I know. We didn't even have yoga, although uh, there was actually, there were some re- requests for yoga. So I might work, work hey, that to, listen to yoga retreat. I, I
0: <laughs> dig yoga. I just don't like I never like anybody telling me what to do. And, and I don't like forced cheer. And so this was something that was authentic, cheer and joy. Um, and it was it was really great. And yes, uh, you know, the individual each of us had these individual stories of this sort of like disillusioning or fall from grace or fall from our community that was so it was so sad. Not because like, whether you want to call this cancel culture, I don't care what you call this. What this is, is a lot of silent human suffering. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was, it was really profound. Everybody did have a story, some of them dramatic and some of them just really, really subtle, but um, it was really moving. And people did not agree, by the way, we have had all kinds of differing views on things. So it I don't was, want
0: to agree with everyone. No, no. I don't that's like the like the friction is the deliciousness of like that's what what I'm in this for is like I get to learn from you and you get to learn from me and I just miss that dialectic which I felt like was so much a part of my liberal upbringing
1: yes and that was what college was by the way that's what college was and after college and just yeah, hanging it was out with people for me,
0: Yeah, I was sitting around at the bar and arguing and shooting the shit. And like that was this stuff, the great stuff of life to me, you know, and so to enter a world where things get shut down so fast and there isn't so much of a prizing of intellectual like inquiry, curiosity about the other side. Maybe learning from the other side, God forbid, loving and liking the other side. And these are things, sins of which I'm guilty of. But I've realized that if I'm going to be guilty of something, I'll take it.
1: Well, so before we end this, Sarah, tell us about what you're doing, including your podcast with Nancy Rommelman. I have a podcast
0: Two, I followed in your footsteps yeah, again. Because there aren't
1: enough. So we have to do our No.
0: Part. I felt like we needed one more star in the galaxy. I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while, actually, because of that joy I find in the in dialectic and in, in talk. I mean, listen, I'm just such a talker. I love talking. Um, and I met Nancy when I did the Atlantic piece. Uh, Nancy Rommelman is a wonderful writer. She's done many different pieces, but especially her reporting uh, over about Portland during the last few years has been particularly fascinating. And, you know, she ran into it with people there because she was trying to tell a different story than they wanted told about. She had a horrible situation. Yeah. Uh, Incredible. Ah, uh, so anyway, Nancy and I met that way. We kept doing conversations, and we decided that we just really wanted to keep going with this. And I've been so thrilled to do it. It's called Smoke 'em if you got 'em. We talk about what's burning through the culture right now, and uh, it's twice a week. Um, we are, you know, for me, it's been an incredibly grounding, wonderful experience, and we're starting to. Develop this community of people that much like you know, your the people that listen to your podcast tell you, you know, like, wow, like I thought I was the only one. Like I'm so glad to have this. This is really giving me hope. And you know what? If if you're gonna work in this, in this side hustle world where everything has to be monetized and everybody's like the the pay scales are crap and just do what you love.
1: Oh man. yeah. Oh yeah. Can you imagine doing like drudgery. Oh. And as a, as a, like, you know, in the new creative economy, like I'm going to start a Patreon for something that I hate. That would be (laughs) awful. I mean, yeah, that's, oh my God. Like if if you're going to do something you hate, just please have good health insurance that somebody else is providing. Let's just put it that way. Well, so do you have? A, you're you're on Substack. Your the podcast is on Substack. Do you have? When you say community, are you it's are you talking about like comments? Are you doing events? What kinds of things are you doing for the community? Yeah,
0: we're you know right now it's just sort of people that comment and email us personally. But uh, but we are developing things that we want to do. You know, I think Nancy had talked about at one point doing a book club. I don't know if she will. I might do a movie club. I have no idea we're we're sort of like experimenting with this I think that we'll probably put out merch at some point. All right. Yeah. That's great. You know, you know, you've made it when you're actually
1: personally chasing down someone's delayed merch order. As the host (laughs) of the show, it's a great look when somebody's when I I receive an just irate email from somebody because their nuanced AF t-shirt has not materialized uh, in the mail. And so I actually have to track it down with the fulfillment center.
0: Personally. Oh, see, that's when I'll know I really made it as a Mm -hmm. podcaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh,
1: all, All artists get into the merch business eventually. It's where we all end up.
0: That's where we all end up. So, you know, so we're experimenting. I hope we can do live events and and we'll have guests on eventually. And I, I hope that you'd come on our podcast because I know I'd love to, I'd love to have you. Of course, anytime. And so do
1: you drop on
0: a particular day or how,
1: what's your schedule?
0: So far, it's been like two days a week, but it's been a little bit uncertain, like like vaguely Tuesday and Saturday. But, but because our schedules vary a little bit, um, we've, we've had to cheat that a little
1: yeah. I'm wondering if, like, that makes a difference. When I started the podcast, the advice I got was to be, like, very consistent. Like, that listeners, they want to know exactly when the show is going to drop. Oh, I the, think at that's the same true. same time every week. But maybe that's starting to change.
0: Well, I think people do want consistency. but um, But I think I wouldn't sacrifice, like doing something for it in other words like don't let perfection be the enemy of the good kind of thing
1: oh you mean like if you get a like a better offer like a social like if you get invited to a party what do you mean (gasps) Yeah,
0: yeah I mean no I just mean like I I we can't like with Nancy and I if we wanted to keep it on the same day every week then we'd probably have to go down to once a week and we'd rather do two and make it a little bit like elastic and then but I don't know Oh, interesting okay
1: all right. Well, I, I have no social life, so it doesn't it doesn't matter. Now that I have two podcasts, I definitely <laughs> don't have a, the podcast is my social life. That's
0: why I have guests. See, well, so it's you know, I'll tell you what uh, the some of the best conversations I ever have are on podcasts, and it's one of the reasons why I love listening to them. And, you know, when I started doing my podcast with Nancy, a lot of my friends told me like, hey, this reminds me of when you and I would talk on the phone. And I feel like I was sort of preparing for doing a podcast by having these long private conversations with people about social complications. But um, look, I'm a child of the 80s. I love the telephone. I love audio. Oh, me too.
1: Is Is that because we're from the 80s?
0: Well, I I don't know if it's because we're from the 80s, but I can tell you that I was like, I came of age with someone's voice in my ear, you know, on the telephone. And then because of loving radio, which I did, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a DJ.
1: Oh, I loved radio so much. I listened constantly. AM, FM, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I I just have a deep and abiding love for audio. Um and I I think it's one of the I don't know, to me it's it's one of the most intimate mediums. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's why I don't do video actually. I don't even I don't even like to record with the video on because I think it's distracting.
0: It's distracting like it, to me when I'm talking. It's distracting sometimes when people are watching you. You know why is she doing that? What's going on? So anyway, like the direct hit of the voice in the ear. And we can explore our heterodoxuality. Oh, it's <sighs> nice. I think there should be a
1: dating app just for heterodox, heterodox, <laughs> heteroda- heterodox date. Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to work on that anyway. Well, Sarah, thank you uh, as always for coming on the podcast. I love talking with you and uh, congratulations on the, on the podcast with Nancy smoke them. If you got them. And Megan, else.
0: you're a gift. And thank you so much for letting me on your show.
1: We'll do it again soon. Okay. That was my conversation with Sarah Heppola. She is the author of the memoir, Blackout, the host of the Texas Monthly produced documentary podcast, America's Girls, about the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, and the co-host with Nancy Rommelman of the podcast, Smoke em If You Got em. She lives in Dallas, Texas. This is the unspeakable podcast. Again, this podcast will be on hiatus for the rest of the summer. If that makes you fret, for some reason, you can catch my new podcast with Sarah Hayter, A Special Place in Hell, which is on Substack and all the usual places. I would add that this little break from The Unspeakable would be a great time to catch up on any episode you might have missed. The show is coming up on its two-year anniversary, and there have been more than 90 episodes. So even if you think you've listened to every single one, I bet you missed at least a few. You'd be surprised how many times someone writes in and recommends a guest, and it turns out that the guest has already been on the show. So great minds. You can go to the website at theunspeakablepodcast.com um, and there are pages and nice photos and descriptions of every single guest ever. Not to mention, that's where you find the Nuance Store where you can purchase all that amazing official Unspeakable Podcast nuanced AF merchandise. Finally, again, The Unspeakeasy, my intellectual community for free thinking women is being built and you can learn about it at theunspeakeasy.com. I'm planning to get that launched around Labor Day, which is also when this podcast will be back. Until then, have a safe and nuanced summer, although I suspect summer is the least nuanced season of the year. I'll be back in September. See you then.